0: Amidst news last month surrounding his yearbook page, Ralph Northam admitted to darkening his face to resemble Michael Jackson for a dance contest in 1984. Soon after Northam's admission, Virginia Attorney General Mark Herring said he too wore blackface in 1980 for a costume of another African-American musician, rapper Curtis Blow.
1: For a white person to have known about and have been interested in Curtis Blow in 1980 indicates discerning taste on the part of that Person, I was a little impressed. <laughs> um, that doesn't defend, by any stretch at all, his having put on blackface. Right. Putting on blackface is, at least to my mind, always highly racially offensive, even when it's done in apparent affection or appreciation of African-American culture.
0: That scholar Eric Lott. He studied the history of blackface minstrelsy for decades and its ripples through modern popular culture. He says the behavior of Northam and Herring in the 1980s represents white folks wanting to express an interest in Black culture
1: but needing to protect yourself, as it were, with the racist mask. That mask, I mean, that's always been the function all the way back into the 1820s and 30s. It handles cross-racial interest on the part of whites in a way that manages it, contains it, makes it safe by adding a dose of ridicule at the same time as it expresses fascination. And to have to do that as late as the 1980s, or indeed the present day, is a mystery.
0: Lott is right to clarify that this isn't an old phenomenon. Seemingly every Halloween, photos go viral of white people donning blackface, mostly for costumes of prominent black celebrities. In fact, a recent study by the Pew Research Center said about a third of Americans think it is always, or at least sometimes acceptable, for a white person to wear blackface for Halloween, The same study revealed that white adults are about twice as likely as black adults to say blackface for a Halloween costume is acceptable. The survey was conducted mostly before the Northam News broke. I talked more with Lott about current attitudes around blackface. We also discussed how the legacy of minstrelsy has influenced black folks' presence in the entertainment industry and the fine line between artistic appreciation, appropriation, and mockery.
1: I don't think there are any hard and fast rules or lines one can draw. Uh, It's a case-by-case argument or debate. Many people whose opinions I respect have written off Elvis as simply an imitator or a thief. And it seems to me that taken all around, with all the materials he was putting together to produce his work and his persona, he managed to do something fresh and interesting. There's a charisma there and a dynamic and a certain kind of dynamite that, he managed to put together. There seems to be some kind of class element that that redoubles or overdetermines or inflects the racial bar the obvious racial borrowings so that, you know, there's a tilt back in the direction of personal or individual expression as well as appropriation. Ralph Ellison posed these problems so well. There is no cultural location in the United States that is untouched. By African American culture. The Mm -hmm. real melting pot is of disparate African and post African cultures melded into a brand new world culture in the New World. And that New World post African culture has influenced everyone in the United States so that, as Ellison put it, most white Americans are significantly African American, many times without realizing it. Mm -hmm. At the same time, that incredibly mixed and melded culture is handled in racist and segregated ways, obviously. So the two kind of thrusts coexist of mixing and of segregation or separation. And Ellison's fine image of the young white kid at a Klan rally with a transistor radio up to his ear, blasting Stevie Wonder. And that really is, that really is the situation right there.
0: Well, let's go back and, and talk about the history of blackface minstrelsy specifically. And and I'm wondering if you might consider it the opening moment where white people began to at least recognize black folk as having a culture. So obviously there's black folk as property, um, but black folk as vessels of culture. Is that really the first time that this happens
1: in American life? It is in entertainment form, yes. It, in order to put the show on in the first place and for white audiences in significant numbers, and it was a big hit right away, to go to these shows, made visible and public and collective and commercially profitable the notion that there were such things as African-American dance, songs, humor that existed. And although they did their best to deny it, right behind that lies the notion that, wait, these are actual human beings with complicated and fascinating cultural practices. There are all kinds of ways, of course, all kinds of languages whites used to degrade, to um, dismiss, to devalue Black minds and ways of being and association in the world. But even if kind of subterranean, there was some kind of recognition
0: there. Now, concurrent with minstrelsy's emergence in the North in the 1830s, and it's really, it's mainstreaming by that time, you have, at the same time, African Americans who can act and who are in theater. But as their participation expands in the theater, they're, they're almost bound by the fact that minstrelsy has become, through the 1850s, 1860s, you know, certainly by the late 19th century, one of the most widely acceptable, widely loved forms of performance. And so to what extent does this kind of of ramping up of minstrelsy, basically box in what Black performers can do?
1: I think it really does uh, box them in, and it's both the ticket to public performance and um, a severely restricted space in which to perform, starting with the fact that when African-American performers take the stage in significant numbers after the Civil War, they have to put on the blackface mask, and they have to do things that proceed according to showbiz routine so that they're recognizable. But right away, it would seem to me that when you have African-American performers in blackface, they're doing all kinds of complicated things at once. And there's all kinds of ironic gestures one might make toward the very mask that one is being forced to wear. Well, Well, give me an example. You know, the donning of the mask for white audiences is just expected. It might even have been more fascinating. The mask reminds everybody that everything's under control here. Mm. And it's the same brand of entertainment that we're familiar with and everything's gonna be fine. But black performers, George Walker, Burt Williams later in the 19th century and early 20th century are making reference to the notion that they had a show called Two Real Coons. Mm. And so the idea is like, okay, you've seen the fakes. These are the real ones. But they're in (sighs) blackface. Wow. You know, immediately in the very title of the show, ironizing the idea of blackface, and right. they have to put on blackface, because here's the real thing. And so you can imagine, you know, the ironic winking, if they're not actually winking, that's going on to um, black audiences and to um, the hipper white patrons who understand that this is all a kind of performative ruse, you know, just to allow black performers on the stage.
0: So there's a double and triple act that the blackface artist has to basically perform.
1: So you've got
0: basically a century of blackface performance from the 1830s through the 1930s. And, you know, as much as we, we all wish that you could have, you know, a dozen Dave Chappelle's kind of exploding the stereotypes, you know, playing a pimp or a crackhead or, you know, a, a black white supremacist, there are many, many more examples of blackface's, you know, visual grammar um, basically being replicated without the, the paint. And how do we make sense of that or even locate when that's happening?
1: Just through debate, it seems to me, the big offender in recent years is Tyler Perry, and I think there's a fair amount of debate about that. Didn't Spike Lee take issue, as they say, right. with uh, <laughs> I think that might be right. with Tyler Perry?
0: And, and did a whole film about Blackface's af- afterlife with Bamboozled,
1: right? Exactly, exactly. And that really is, I mean, now that you mentioned it, that really is, and visual grammar is, is really the perfect phrase for locutions that don't seem to... Harken back to this tradition, but that actually speak the same language. Right. So that I think, you know, performers might think that they're eluding that template or trying to work with it and work beyond it, but the grammar is the same. Mm-hmm. Bamboozled, much of it, Spike Lee maintains a sense and uh, puts forward in very interesting ways the way in which the framing, visual and performative of blackface extends to the present day and unfortunately delimits what black performers can do. I mean, that's an interesting, this crazy conceit that, okay, then we'll just do a minstrel show so as to produce a flop so that the TV producer can get out of his contract and go do something else because he's so sick of producing television. It winds up an unintended hit.
0: You raise a very powerful question and really a a through line, um, again, across this century now and and after, which is that so much of the the minstrelsy story and, and its various permutations, really, is about how profitable it is. And, you know, thinking about the mass acceptability and marketability of hip-hop culture, you know, uh, sports outfits, it sounds at least that there's a, a connection here between minstrelsy as a really important piece of profitable popular culture and what then comes after it. Is there anything about our current moment, and, and they're just thinking forward about the echoes of minstrelsy in today's culture that can somehow challenge the profitability of certain kinds of stereotype or assumptions about Black people and their culture and their modes of, of living.
1: You know, I a few years ago I thought that there was a there was a moment of Beyonce at the Super Bowl in New Orleans mm-hmm. and her halftime show, which was a kind of Charlie's Angels riff, right. And there were at least a dozen black female performers surrounding Beyoncé on this stage in the New Orleans Superdome, kind of taking it back, as it were, from George Bush's Katrina disaster. Interesting. And to have um, this Charlie's Angels theme, the reuniting of Destiny's Child on stage under the guise, very lightly staged, of a crime-fighting troop of Black women surrounded by Black women playing instruments and dancing with martial steps, that struck me as a kind of thrilling, performative analog to some new dispensation. Mm -hmm. In other words, it staged the struggle that must continue, and that has to go on, because I don't think once one finds the right moves, you can count on them staying forever,
0: Eric Lott is a professor of English and American Studies at the City University of New York Graduate Center. His latest book is called Black Mirror, The Cultural Contradictions of American Racism.